Chapter Seventeen, Part One of Popular History of Ireland, Book Eleven by Thomas Darcy McGee, read for LibriVox.org into the public domain. The Insurrection Elsewhere: Fate of the Leading United Irishmen. On the twenty-first of June, the Marquis Cornwallis, whose name is so familiar in American and East Indian history, arrived in Dublin to assume the supreme power, both civil and military. As his chief secretary, he recommended Lord Castlereagh who had acted in that capacity during the latter part of Lord Camden's administration, in consequence of Mr. Pelham's illness, and the Pitt-Portland administration appointed his lordship accordingly, because, among other good and sufficient reasons, he was so unlike an Irishman. While the new viceroy came to Ireland still more resolute than his predecessor to bring about the long-desired legislative union, it is but justice to his memory to say, that he as resolutely resisted the policy of torture and provocation pursued under Lord Camden. That policy had indeed served its pernicious purpose, and it was now possible for a new ruler to turn a new leaf. This Lord Cornwallis did from the hour of his arrival, not without incurring the ill-concealed displeasures of the castle cabal. But his position gave him means of protection, which Sir Ralph Abercrombie had not. He was known to enjoy the personal confidence of the king, and those who did not hesitate three months before to assail by every abusive epithet the humane Scottish baronet, hesitated long before criticizing with equal freedom the all-powerful viceroy. The next sequel of the insurrection may be briefly related. Next to Wexford, the adjoining county of Wicklow, famous throughout the world for its lakes and glens, maintained the chief brunt of the Leinster battle. The brothers Byrne of Balamanus, with Holt, Hackett, and other leaders, were for months, from the difficult nature of the country, enabled to defy those combined movements by which, as in a huge net, Lord Lake had swept up the camps of Wexford. At Hackettstown, on the 25th of June, the Burns were repulsed with considerable loss, but at Balyellis, on the 30th, fortune and skill gave them and their Wexford comrades a victory, resembling in many respects that of Clough. General Needham, who had again established his headquarters at Gorey, detached Colonel Preston, with some troops of ancient Britons, the 4th and 5th Dragoons, and three yeomanry corps, to attack the insurgents who were observed in force in the neighborhood of Monaseed. Aware of this movement, the Burns prepared in the ravine of Balielis a well-laid ambuscade, barricading with carts and trees the farther end of the pass. Attacked by the Royalists, they retreated towards this pass, were hotly pursued, then turned on their pursuers. Two officers and sixty men were killed in the trap, while the terrified rear flank fled for their lives to the shelter of their headquarters. At Balrahin, on the 2nd of July, the king's troops sustained another check in which they lost two officers and ten men, but at Ballygullen, on the 4th, the insurgents were surrounded between the forces of General Needham, Sir James Duff, and the Marquis of Huntley. This was the last considerable action in which the Wicklow and Wexford men were unitedly engaged. In the dispersion which followed, Billy Byrne of Ballymanus, the hero of his county, paid the forfeit of his life, while his brother Garrett subsequently surrendered, and was included in the Banishment Act. Anthony Perry of Inch, and Father Kearns, leading a much-diminished band into Kildare, formed a junction with Elmer and Reynolds of that county, and marched into Meath, with a view of reaching and surprising Athlone. The plan was boldly and well conceived, but their means of execution were deplorably deficient. At Clonard they were repulsed by a handful of troops well armed and posted. A combined movement always possible in Meath, 
drove them from side to side during the midweek of July, until at length, hunted down as they were, they broke up in twos and threes to seek any means of escape. Father Kearns and Mr. Perry were, however, arrested and executed by martial law at Edenderry. Both died bravely, the priest sustaining and extorting his companion to the last. Still another band of the Wexford men, under Father John Murphy and Walter Devereux, crossed the barrow at Gore's Bridge, and marched upon Kilkenny. At Lowgrange they surprised an outpost. At Castle Cummer, after a sharp action, they took the town, which Sir Charles Asgill endeavoured, but without success, to relieve. Thence they continued their march towards Athy and Kildare, but being caught between two or rather three fires, that of Major Matthews, from Maryborough, General Dunn from Athy, and Sir Charles Asgill, they retreated on Old Leglin, as if seeking the shelter of the Carlow Mountains. At Kilcomney Hill, however, they were forced into action under most unfavourable circumstances, and utterly routed. One, Father Murphy, fell in the engagement. The other, the precursor of the insurrection, was captured three days afterward, and conveyed a prisoner to General Duff's headquarters at Tullow. Here he was put on his trial before a military commission composed of Sir James Duff, Lord Roden, Colonels Eden and Foster, and Major Hall. Hall had the meanness to put to him, prisoner as he was, several insulting questions, which at length the high-spirited rebel answered with a blow. The commission thought him highly dangerous, and instantly ordered him to execution. His body was burned, his head spiked on the market-house of Tullow, and his memory gibbeted in all the loyal publications of the period. On his person, before execution, were found a crucifix, a pyx, and letters from many Protestants, asking his protection. As to his reputation, the priest who girded on the sword only when he found his altar overthrown and his flock devoured by wolves, need not fear to look posterity in the face. Of the other Leinster leaders, Walter Devereux, the last colleague of Father Murphy, was arrested at Cork, on the eve of sailing for America, tried and executed. Fitzgerald and Almer were spared on condition of expatriation. Months afterward, Holt surrendered, was transported, and returned after several years, to end his days where he began his career. Dwyer alone maintained the life of a rapparee for five long years among the hills of Wicklow, where his adventures were often of such a nature as to throw all fictitious conceptions of an outlaw's life into commonplace by comparison. Except in the fastnesses frequented by this extraordinary man, and in the woods of Kilogram in Wexford, where the outlaws, with the last stroke of national humour, assumed the name of the Babes in the Wood, the Leinster insurrection was utterly trodden out within two months from its first beginning, on the 23rd of May. So weak against discipline, arms, munitions, and money, are all that mere naked valour and devotion can accomplish. Ulster, on the organisation of which so much time and labour had been expended for four or five years preceding, the rising was not more general than in Leinster, and the actual struggle lasted only a week. The two counties which moved en masse were down in Antrim, the original chiefs of which, such as Thomas Russell and Samuel Nielsen, were unfortunately in prison. The next leader on whom the men of Antrim relied resigned his command on the very eve of the appointed day. This disappointment and the arrest of the Reverend Steele Dixon in Down compelled a full fortnight's delay. On the 7th of June, however, the more determined spirits resolved on action, and the first movement was to seize the town of Antrim, which, if they could have held it, would have given them command of the communications with Donegal and Down, from both of which they might have expected important additions to their ranks. 
The leader of this enterprise was Henry John McCracken, a cotton manufacturer of Belfast, thirty-two years of age, well-educated, accomplished, and resolute, with whom was associated a brother of William Orr, the proto-martyr of the Ulster Union. The town of Antrim was occupied by the twenty-second light dragoons, Colonel Lumley, and the local yeomanry under Lord O'Neill. In the first assault the insurgents were successful, Lord O'Neill, five officers, forty-seven rank and file having fallen, and two guns being captured. But Lumley's dragoons had hardly vanished out of sight, when a strong reinforcement from Blairis' camp arrived and renewed the action, changing premature exultation into panic and confusion. Between two and three hundred of the rebels fell, and McCracken and his staff, deserted by their hasty levies, were arrested, wearied and hopeless, about a month later, wandering among the Antrim hills. The leaders were tried at Belfast and executed. In Down two actions were fought, one at Saintfield on the 7th of June, under Dr. Jackson, where Colonel Stapleton was severely handled, and another and more important one at Ballynahinch, under Henry Monroe on the 13th, where Nugent, the district general, commanded in person. Here, after a gallant defence, the men of Down were utterly routed. Their leader, alone and on foot, was captured some five or six miles from the field, and executed two days afterwards before his own door at Lisburn. He died with the utmost composure, his wife and mother looking down on the awful scene from the windows of his own house. In Munster, with the exception of a trifling skirmish between the West Meath Yeomanry under Sir Hugh O'Reilly, with whom were the Caithness Legion, under Major Innes, and a body of three hundred or four hundred ill-armed peasants, who attacked them on the ninth of June, on the road from Clonakilty to Brandon, there was no notable attempt at insurrection. But in Connaught, very unexpectedly, as late as the end of August, the flame extinguished in blood in Leinster and Ulster, again blazed up for some days with portentous brightness. The counties of Mayo, Sligo, Roscommon, and Galway had been partially organized by those fugitives from Orange oppression in the north, who, in the years ninety-five, ninety-six, and ninety-seven, had been compelled to flee for their lives into Connaught, to the number of several thousands. They brought with them the tale of their sufferings, the secret of defenderism. They brought with the tale of their sufferings the secret of defenderism. They first taught the peasantry of the West, who, safe in their isolated situation and their overwhelming numbers, were more familiar with poverty than with persecution, what manner of men then held sway over all the rest of the country, and how easily it would be for Irishmen once united and backed by France to establish under their own green flag both religious and civil liberty. When, therefore, three French frigates cast anchor in Killala Bay on the 22nd of August, they did not find the country wholly unprepared, though far from being as ripe for revolt as they expected. These ships had on board one thousand men, with arms for one thousand more, under command of General Humbert, who had taken on himself, in the state of anarchy which then prevailed in France, to sail from La Rochelle with his handful of men, in aid of the insurrection. With Humbert were Matthew Tone and Bartholomew Teeling, and immediately on his arrival he was joined by Messrs. Macdonnell, Moore, Bellew, Barrett, O'Dowd, and O'Donnell of Mayo, Blake of Galway, Plunkett of Roscommon, and a few other influential gentlemen of that province, almost all Catholics. Three days were spent at Killala, which was easily taken, in landing stores, enrolling recruits, and sending out parties of observation. On the fourth, Sunday, Humbert entered Bellina without resistance, and on the same night set out for Castlebar, the county town. 
By this time intelligence of his landing was spreading over the whole country, and both Lord Lake and General Hutchinson had advanced to Castle Bar, where they had from two thousand to three thousand men under their command. The place could be reached only by two routes from the northwest, by the Foxford Road, or a long deserted mountain road which led over the pass of Barnegie, within sight of the town. Humbert, accustomed to the long marches and difficult country of La Vendée, chose the unfrequented and therefore unguarded route, and to the consternation of the British generals, descended through the pass of Barnegie, soon after sunrise, on the morning of Monday, August 27th. His force consisted of nine hundred French bayonets, and between two thousand and three thousand new recruits. The action, which commenced at seven o'clock, was short, sharp, and decisive. The yeomanry and regulars broke and fled, some of them never drawing rein till they reached Tom, while others carried their fears and their falsehoods as far inland as Athlone, more than sixty miles from the scene of action. In this engagement, still remembered as the races, the royalists confessed to the lost, killed, wounded, or prisoners of eighteen officers, and about three hundred and fifty men, while the French commander estimated the killed alone at six hundred. Fourteen British guns and five stand of colours were also taken. A hot pursuit was continued for some distance by the native troops under Matthew Tone, Teeling, and the Mayo officers, but Lord Roden's famous corps of fox-hunters covered the retreat and checked the pursuers at French Hill. Immediately after the battle a provisional government was established at Castlebar, with Mr. Moore of Moore Hall as president, proclamations addressed to the inhabitants at large, commissions to raise men, and assignats payable by the future Irish Republic were issued in its name. End of chapter 17, part 1. Read by Sibella Denton. For more free audiobooks or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org.